Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Oh boy, another politician out with a book. Yeah, except Vince Cable is like I have never seen before. He hit the ball out of the park. Writing three and even four years ago, he opens open arms June 7 of 2019 into the future. Indian sources report a border incident on the line of control in Kashmir. Mr. Cable joins us today. Vince, first of all, congratulations on getting out in front of the news as I have never ever seen in fiction. How did you do that? Well, it's, it's, it's a political thriller uh, and a love story, and it's set in the UK, but I have a long-standing association with India. I first, first went there over half a century ago. I have Indian in-laws. I love the country, uh, and I, I'm aware of how important it is, but also of the dangers uh, of conflict. I mean, you have these two nuclear powers. You have a big division based on religion. And of course, those divisions are reflected in British society because we have a large um, former Pakistan, former India population. And I set my drama uh, around uh, an arms contract between Britain and India. Post-Brexit, Britain's trying to push arms exports, and we we find ourselves in the middle of that uh, historic conflict which remarkably has remained subdued for for many years, I mean, given the potential for, for damage. Uh, what do we misunderstand? So this is a thriller. Yesterday, we, you know, we saw the tensions unfold actually in real time, and we covered it extensively here on uh, Bloomberg surveillance between India and Pakistan. But what do we misunderstand about the shift in, in geopolitics around the world? Well, I think probably we're underestimating the risk. Uh, I mean, these are two nuclear powers. There is an unresolved dispute over territory, which is also reflected in, in populist politics. I mean, both these are democratic countries. Uh, they both rely heavily on um, you know, the Indian government on kind of Hindu nationalism, uh, the Pakistan government on you know, Muslim radicals. Um, you know, temper, temp, tempers easily rise. I mean, we've been fortunate that they've had some very rational statesmen-like leaders on both sides who steered them clear of conflict. But the potential for disaster is, I'm afraid, all too real. But is this the retrenchment of, you know, the, the superpower that is the U.S. from playing a bigger role in the region? Well, it, it's certainly part of it. I mean, actually, at the moment, I think probably China has more influence in the region because of its very big investment in Pakistan. Uh, but the United, Nation, the United States traditionally played a role in, in both sides. They, they valued India mm-hmm. because of its economic importance and its democracy. Uh, once upon a time, you may remember, J.K. Galbraith was sent as an ambassador yeah. as a symbol. Um, and, of course, on, on the Pakistan side, um, the United States supported the them for geopolitical reasons. The United States has largely walked away, uh, and that's one of the factors that's, I think, adding to the instability. Well, Dr. Cable, as you mentioned, John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, working with John F. Kennedy a few years ago and all that symbolism, you attended the meetings of Indira Gandhi and Margaret Thatcher of another time and place. Give us an update. What is the special relationship right now of the United Kingdom with India? 
probably not as big as a lot of British people would like to believe. Of course, it is, was formerly part of the British Empire. We left a big legacy, much of it good, some of it bad, including the partition of, uh, of India. Um, but the, 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 the real role that Britain plays is the fact that we now have a substantial minority in the UK of migrants who came here from the subcontinents, um, some of them from, Pash, uh, from Pakistan, many of them from Kashmir, and many Indians who came here as well. And so, in a way, the, both the good and the bad of the Indian subcontinent has been transplanted into British society. That's, that is the main link we now have. Um, how will the world's economy, and I guess, linked to that geopolitics change in the next 10 years? Well, because India is becoming a superpower. Yeah. And this is, it will, I mean, in, in population terms, it will overtake China. Its economy is ex extremely dynamic. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it's, it's a peculiar case, I think, where it's a very state-controlled economy but with a very dynamic private sector. There's this saying that the, in India the government goes to sleep at night and the economy starts to function. Um, and it is growing at, you know, <coughs> six, seven, eight percent a year. It is rapidly overtaking China. It's got a long time lag. I, I, within a few years' time, it will have, probably have the third biggest economy in, in the world. And I think smart people uh, are beginning to appreciate its importance. And Pakistan, too, is, is a major economic power, potentially. Uh, so, um, you know, the, the Western world is underestimating, I think, the, the shift in the center of gravity of the world economy of which India is a, is a critical part. Vince Cable, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, he is the leader of the UK Liberal Democrat Party joining us today. our top story, a gloomy report from the OECD telling you everything you already knew. The global economy suffering from trade tensions and political uncertainty clouding prospects for the future. The organisation cutting the outlook again to 3.3% for global growth from 35 and warning there may be worse ahead. Joining us here in New York is Alan Ruskin, Deutsche Bank Global Co-Head of FX Strategy. Good morning to you, Alan. Morning, John. How useful is a forecast from the OECD and let's throw in the IMF for that matter too. Yeah, um, look, these are uh, very big organizations that have certain advantages like uh, big economic models, um, but they are obviously not the most nimble in a sense, so uh, they can't uh, change their forecasts on a dime. I would argue in, in this particular instance, they're really following probably a set of market expectations and following the data rather than necessarily leading it. Well, let's talk about the data we have had. We had a really, really hot print on the ISM in America yesterday, the non-manufacturing ISM recovering dramatically. Are we getting back to that early 2018 story of just strength in America and weakness elsewhere? Well, there does still seem to be uh, some sense of uh, American exceptionalism because however much the US may be slowing, and that's obviously a question mark, um, however much it is slowing, it's probably uh, slowing less than most other places. Um, now, the ISM data, as you mentioned, is truly exceptional. At the same time, you're probably going to get some oddly weak GDP data, albeit distorted, for quarter one. Yeah. Um, data that could be, say, sub 1% even. Um, so it's going to be interesting. It's going to be quite hard to read the tea leaves as far as the data is concerned. When people were reading the Federal Reserve tea leaves and looking for the pivot from Chairman Powell, they pushed that view of patience through the equity market. It's done very well. They pushed it through credit. It's done very well. They tried to push it through foreign exchange by assuming we would get a weaker dollar. 
We haven't had one. What's going on, Alan? Yeah, so I think uh, that's very much a story of relativism. So there you have to compare what's going on uh, in, in the U.S. versus places like uh, the EU and, uh, and particularly Japan. Um, what you've seen is the thought process of, well, look, if the U.S. is slowing and the Fed's actually not going to be doing anything, then the ECB is not going to be doing much either. And the ECB is going to get locked into negative interest rates at the peak of its interest rate cycle, which is widely seen as diabolical. So yeah, um, it's yeah. that that's hamstringing the, the euro in particular. We talked about this at length yesterday. Yesterday was fascinating, folks, between Liz Economy and a set of interviews on China and also what Mr. Ruskin speaks of here, which is the x-axis of negative interest rates. We're pushing five years of negative German two-year. That's not in my textbooks, is it? No, we're, we're well out of the realms of textbooks, unless you've been reading the one uh, that has uh, been written in Japanese, really, for the last 20-odd years. Um, well, Pimco, which, uh, Pimco really, out in the last 24 hours saying that's what Europe faces, perhaps Japanification. No, absolutely. It looks very, very similar indeed, actually, that there's this sort of sense that you get locked into extremely low interest rates okay, for a long Okay, then how does Draghi in Europe not Japanify? Well, I think the first step would be to look to fiscal policy because, oddly enough, Europe has been following uh, relatively austere fiscal policies, particularly in Germany, where they've been yeah. running a surplus. So why are you running a surplus in this particular environment? They're running when a you're surplus because the, 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 the currency is an artificial construct. Yes, but no, there's, there's, there's politics behind it as well. I mean, they and just fell off their chairs in Frankfurt at Deutsche Bank. Um, where, should, where should Euro be for Germany? And, you know... Grab your badge. You'll be okay. We'll just take a guess. One, one fifty. Well, you one, and I can 60. say that, Mr. Ruskin. We, we can say it. We can say it for Alan. The, the problem Europe has, Alan, and you know this, there is zero consensus for counter-cyclical fiscal policy in Europe. The that, Europeans, the South, might want it. The Italians, the Spanish, for that matter, too. Maybe the Greeks, but they've been forced by the North and the core of Europe to go down a different path. Um, that's right. And in some ways, you, you, I think John making the argument that, uh, well, forget Japanification. In fact, Europe's in a worse situation than Japan because it doesn't really have its levers. You know, it can't pull the levers on policy. No policy response whatsoever, which is why the OECD report, as backward looking as it is, is slightly concerning because it raises the concern that many people have. It's the slowdown in Europe, yeah. the lack of a policy response. As we go through to the ECB meeting tomorrow, what options do they actually have, Alan? Well, I think their main option is really to uh, roll over LTRO2s and, and the like, really keep the liquidity flowing. But that's not an exit story, really. And they thought they were going to be in an exit situation at this point in time. So I think they, ha they do have their hands tied, unfortunately. And if we do see a growth slowdown, it's inopportune. And uh, they might have missed the boat in terms of normalization. So the thing we're going to hear more and more over the next coming weeks, I assume, is the carry trade and buy the US dollar. Is that the story for you, Alan? Well, it's, it's certainly a story that we've been telling for a while, and particularly on the carry side of things, a little bit less so on the sort of buy US dollar. And it, it, there's been a very active debate, not only in terms of what you want to be long in terms of carry, and let's say you just want to be long the whole gamut of uh, e EM high heels for the time being, at least whilst the, the uh, US stock market's hanging in and the power put looks to be uh, in play. 
So you want the whole gamut of EM longs and you probably want to be financing it with a little bit of yen, a little bit of euros and perhaps some dollars. But the dollar is not necessarily putting up its hand as the obvious funding currency. Can you, and folks, this is a little bit of pro jargon here, but we'll go there on a, on a cold day in New York. Can you finance the carry trade with negative interest rates? Yes, you love it. Really. How do you do yeah, that? Yeah, no. How do you do yeah, that? The forward points are even more in your favor. Uh, the microphone's yeah. over there, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm falling do, off my stool here. He's getting excited. I know. How do you finance with negative interest? Can the, I do the, that with the, college tuition? You can indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can. There's How a, do you do the, it? The, the, the forward points are exactly reflective really of interest rate spreads and the forward points uh, whether the rates are zero or negative will be there adjusted uh, you know and appropriate for what that interest rate so spread I can is. afford in like nine years Swissy grab a negative interest rate yeah and, and yeah. you know and, and historically you will find that countries which have these very low interest rates are expected to appreciate over time and if you think they're not going to appreciate then you can take uh, a, right. a bet in the other direction, effectively, okay. yeah, and sell those currencies. If you're driving off the road right now, don't worry. I'm driving <laughs> off the road in the studio as well. Alan Ruskin with some of the complexities that carry there. He is with uh, Deutsche Bank. It is now a great pleasure to bring to you the 10th president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, William Dudley, out of Williston, out of uh, Berkeley, where he took his Ph.D. in New College of Florida uh, a few years back. Bill Dudley has been an original economist. He wrote a chapter for me with the wonderful Ed McKelvey years ago in my book. And in that, he said, there is not a moment to lose. Bill Dudley, wonderful to have you with us today on the Fed a few other topics as well. What is there not a moment to lose for the markets to hook back with Fed policy? The distance of the dots is substantial, isn't it? Well, there's quite a bit of distance between the last uh, summer economic projections and what the market currently thinks. I think the key question is when the Fed says they're patient, does that mean they're done? And I think the answer is not necessarily. I think what's going to happen is we're going to have a pretty weak first quarter, and that's going to probably reinforce the idea that the Fed is done. But I think the economy is going to pick up uh, steam after that. Uh, some of the issues that were holding the economy back, like the tightening of financial conditions that we saw in the fourth quarter, the f questions about Chinese growth, the uncertainties about trade policy, I think those things are going to re be resolved mainly positively in the first half of the year. So I think uh, Fed tightening may be back on the table in the second half of 2019. So, Bill, over the last couple of months, the Federal Reserve has come under some criticism about the way it's communicated, its change towards a position of patience. How does the Federal Reserve refine its communication in the coming months to adjust and guide the market towards the reality you just described? Well, I think the Fed has tried to get the market to focus less on what it says about the, its own projections and more about uh, the economic outlook. The economic outlook is what's going to drive uh, the Fed. And what, ch what changed in the fourth quarter was we had a lot of new developments. Financial conditions tightened, growth <laughs> abroad slowed, there were uncertainties about trade policy, and inflation was you know, very quiescent. The unemployment rate stopped declining, even though payroll growth was strong. So there's a whole bunch of factors that push the Fed in the direction of being patient. Whether those factors persist or not will determine whether, in fact, patience means done. Well, Bill, it's been quite difficult recently to get an understanding of the Fed's reaction function because there's been a lot of discussion about allowing for an overshoot on the inflation target of in and around 2%. 
in your mind, is this a Fed that's willing to tolerate a bit of an overshoot? And how does that complicate things? If you say to the market, we're data dependent, but the market doesn't know how you're dependent on the data. Well, I think the discussion about inflation is really a longer term issue about do they want to move away from their current policy, which is a bygones policy. In other words, if they miss inflation below 2% for a long period of time, uh, their next move is to try to get back to 2%, not above 2%. That's the current policy. They're now having discussions about whether that's not, maybe that's not the right policy, because that might lead inflation expectations to decline over time. So they're thinking about refining their, their inflation objectives. But that's different. That's not going to happen right in the very near term. They're going on a, a big uh, pro- project over the next 6 to 12 months to evaluate yeah. whether their inflation targeting regime is the pro- proper one. I think in the near term, it's really going to be about growth, pressure on resources, and whether that shows up in any inflation pressure. I, I think the Fed is going to be tolerant of inflation slightly above 2%. But if they think the economy has a lot of momentum, if they think inflation is going to keep climbing, uh, then they're going to start to tighten again. You're just joining us, William Dudley, a Bloomberg opinion piece. Don't assume that the Fed is done raising rates. That according to Bill Dudley. Uh, Dr. Dudley, on paragraph seven, you do what you do best, which is hide your mathematics. You talk about threshold effects, and you also talk about inertial force, the physics of monetary policy. Where is the inertial force right now in our monetary policy? Well, it takes, you know, it takes a bit of information for the Fed to sort of change its mind. So we had a lot of evidence in the fourth quarter that pushed the Fed off the, off the notion of continuing to tighten in the near term. Right. Now it's going to take that evidence reversing, quite a bit of reversal, before the Fed starts to decide to tighten again. Uh, so, I, you know, if you look at the Fed monetary policy through history, the Fed doesn't move erratically. They don't, they don't go up and then down, up and then down. They tend to move in, 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 in sort of cycles. And that sort of shows you that there's threshold effects to get them to move in one direction or the other. And once they start moving, it takes quite a bit of information to get them to stop. And once they've stopped, it takes quite a bit of information to get them to move again. Bill, can we just take the opportunity to lift the lid on the decision-making process at the FOMC? Whenever we have guests come into radio with Tom and I to see how the sausage is made, they're always surprised by how messy it really is. And largely because of what Tom and I are doing behind the scenes. It's very messy, Tom. I'm just wondering how messy it is at the FOMC because the market is literally gripping on every, hanging on every single word you guys put out. What happens in a around the table at the Eccles Come on, Bill, we're among friends here. How do you come, come, how do you decide on the word, everyone's going to go out there and talk about patience. Patience is our new word. Do you guys sing Kumbaya? <laughs> patience, I mean, patience means what it says. I mean, it means I'm going to be slow yeah. to do anything. It doesn't mean I'm done. But do you sit around the table, Bill, and decide that that's the word you're all going to go out and trot around for the next month or so? Talk me through the decision-making process. Well, How do you guys these, come up with these it? Words, these words are not cho- chosen lightly. I mean, if you see something that's in a speech uh, or in a in the chair's press conference, those words are very clo- you know carefully chosen. If mm-hmm. someone is speaking extemporaneously, then you can discount those words a little bit because people obviously can't be quite as precise when they're speaking, right. when they're writing. So the words are very important. Fed is p- picking those words with you know, care and, deli- and care after careful deliberation. And it's also words that are picked, uh, that you know, they're socialized across the committee. I mean, typically what hap- typically the, <clears throat> the chair wants the, the committee to be together. <clears throat> right. And so there's, you know, there's going to be some discussion about are these kind of words the words that are appropriate yeah. or not. Bill, I want you to weigh in here on the raging debate and in the scope of the time that we've got left with you this morning. 
Modern monetary theory, Lawrence Summers writing in the Post on it yesterday, Ken Rogoff writing in Project Syndicate, Paul Krugman coming out forcefully against a theory advocated by Stephanie Kelton of Stony Brook, and she's written this up in uh, Bloomberg Opinion as well. I don't want to go into a great dissertation right now on MMT, but part of it is a belief that the legislative branch can make a decision-making or can execute decision-making on fiscal slash monetary policy in a more efficacious way than a Federal Reserve system. Do you see any evidence of that, that there can be a better process of execution of our fiscal policy other than from the Fed? Look, I I did not subscribe to modern monetary theory at all. I mean, the fact that you issue debt in your own currency means you can't default. That's true. But that doesn't mean you can't have a huge hyperinflation problem. Uh, This was tried in the Weimar Republic. It was tried in Zimbabwe. Uh, We had a little episode of this in in the 1960s and 1970s. This is a really a crackpot theory, in my opinion. That said, could there be better coordination of monetary policy and fiscal policy? Right. Absolutely. So if the, if the Fed were trapped at the zero lower bound for interest rates, it'd be great if we had a fiscal policy at that time that was strongly right. pro-cyclical, that was actually providing support to the economy. One thing I'd like to see is the fiscal stabilizers, automatic fiscal stabilizers strengthened. So if there is an economic downturn, people know right. that the government's going to cut fiscal, you know, ease fiscal policy, and that's going to stimulate the economy. That would help the Fed do its job. So better coordination between the fiscal side and the monetary policy side would help the economy. Bill, this is so important. You and Ed McKelvey were so far out front on concern and the ramifications of a growing debt or deficit. Where we are now, according to CBO, is so much worse than McKelvey and Dudley ever thought about. How do you reframe there's not a moment to lose on our fiscal policy in 2020 or 2025? Well, I think the problem is that the markets right now are just not worried about it. Uh, you know, even though the deficit pass <clears throat> is not good, that debt service costs are going to climb very, very sharply over the coming years. The baby boom generation is going to retire and entitlement spending costs are going to go up. Markets are just not worried about it. And so I think the problem is until markets start to become more concerned about it, right. there's not going to be any pressure on the policy making side to do to do anything meaningful about it. Can I get one quote from you from Vice Chairman Clarity? He calls it a solid American economy. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I think that I think it is. I mean, I think the thing that strikes me is that the household sector in particular is in very good shape. You've had strong employment growth. You have rising wages. You have very little uh, increase in household debt burden. Debt service costs are the lowest they've been, you know, going back several, several de- decades. Uh, so I think the household sector, which is, you know, 65, mm. 70% of the economy is in really good shape. I think there's some questions about other areas like investment, but that's probably dr- being driven by uncertainties about trade policy. Resolve the uncertainties about trade policy, I think investment will bounce back. So I think the U.S. economy uh, is in you know, quite good shape. I don't see much prospect for a recession in the near term. Bill Dudley, thank you so much. Former, thank you, Bill. Uh, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and now with Princeton University Center for Economic and Policy And what a lineup studies. of Bloomberg opinion we have now. Sarah House joining us now, Wells Fargo Security Senior Economist. Great to have you with us, Sarah. So we caught up with the former New York Fed President, William Dudley. Bill said, don't assume the Fed is done raising rates. Do you agree with that, Sarah? 
I do agree with that. So we currently expect the Fed to go ahead and move again in the third quarter for many of the reasons that, that Dudley laid out. So um, when we look at the, the overall reason for the Fed's pause, so of course we've seen global growth slow down. Um, we've seen a lot of concerns about the trade war. I think the, the shutdown uncertainty had some uh, had some play in this too, and of course the, the tightening in, in financial conditions. Well, we're still seeing some concerns about, about the global slowdown, so I don't think that's likely to go away that soon, but um, it looks like we'll get some sort of resolution on on the trade war. Um, Shutdown's been resolved. We've already seen some indicators like consumer confidence uh, bounce back. And of course, financial conditions have have reversed. In fact, if you look at the Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index, they're actually the easiest they've been since last October. So um, we think that that growth will bounce back um, in the second quarter, and that'll give the the Fed the green light to go ahead and move in Q3. Sarah, let me ask you this, a question that I asked Mr. Dudley. The Federal Reserve says they are data dependent. Do you have a clear, a really strong understanding of how they are dependent on the data? So I think, you know, they're, they're looking at a mix. Obviously, it's not just, just one, one or two indicators. Um, you know, they're, they're giving, I think, a lot of, of weight, or um, at least we think they'll be giving weight towards the uh, employment and inflation measure. So we expect inflation to pick up a little bit from, from where it is here. So not, not at a point where we'd really have to see the Fed ratchet up the, the pace of tightening. But we think inflation is going to hold firm at uh, core inflation, roughly 2%, maybe even a, a couple tenths over that by by the end of the year and you know the employment data continues continues to look strong and so um, just con- considering the the continued solid momentum that we see there um, given that those are, are the primary focal points of, of the Fed we think that that's going going to give them uh, again that that green light to, to go ahead and move but um, clearly they, they've been watching more um, more uh, more areas than, than they have in the past and incorporating those those moves in financial conditions well, and- Sarah, seemingly it seems to be financial conditions that is becoming increasingly important because we just had one of the strongest prints for this cycle of the non-manufacturing ISM just yesterday. Mm -hmm. The U.S. economy, going by the data, still looks pretty strong, Sarah, yet the only thing that's really changed radically over the last six months was the price action in markets. So let's talk about that. Increasingly, financial markets and financial conditions seem to be a much, much bigger issue for this Federal Reserve than just the economic data in isolation. Why is that, Sarah? Well, I think it's in, it's where we are in the cycle. So it's it's the fact that you know the, we're we're getting to a point where policy is roughly neutral. So we would expect to see what the Fed is doing have a, a bigger impact on on financial markets. Um, the issue is that you know there's there's a little bit of a a little bit of a push pull. So uh, financial conditions tighten, the Fed gets easier. Financial conditions ease, well then the Fed can be uh, perhaps a little bit more more aggressive. So I think that implies that we would get per, perhaps more volatility volatility as, as we see kind of that back yeah. and forth between Fed language and the market reaction. So what does Wells Fargo see as a state of the consumer in the United States? I mean, what's the granularity you're crunching through every day? Yeah, so the, the consumer is, is really the, the strong point. So I mean, look at Kohl's yesterday. I mean, this is completely separate, Sarah, from you. But who would have mm-hmm. thought that a midline department store would have done as well as Kohl's did? They did really well. 
Right. And, and that's what's really underpinning our, our forecast for another year of above potential growth and is, is the strength of the consumer. So we're seeing pretty strong in, income growth. So especially when you look at, at the labor income. Um, so the fact that we have seen such strong job growth, rising wages, and that's really filtering through, I think, towards more of those middle and, and lower income consumers. So um, the, the wage growth has actually been strongest at the lowest end. And I think that is supporting, um, some, you know, some of these, you know, maybe more more middle middle tier companies. So, Sarah, how um, long before the Hawks at the FOMC start making some noise again? Oh, listen to you. There you go, creating a trend. <laughs> I, I think I think there's still some time. So, even as we see inf- uh, core inflation picking up to about 2.2 percent by by the end of the year, that's really not a threat to to the Fed. And especially, I think, as they are coming around to the fact that they can let in inflation drift a little bit above above 2%. So, of course, the, the target is still formally 2%, as, as Bill Dudley was, was just talking about with, with you guys. But I think the, the Fed's getting increasingly comfortable with a, a little bit of a, an overshoot. So I think, uh, I think the hawks will, will be pretty quiet. Sarah House. Great to catch up with you. Wells Fargo Securities yeah. Senior Sir, Economist. As we count you down to payrolls but Friday. Th- If you're worried about your portfolio, you've got company. That would be the President of the United States. He likes stocks up. Saleh Mosin is with Bloomberg in Washington, where she looks at Treasury affairs and White House affairs and the distance from Treasury to White House. How long? Is it like a football field? Oh, between no, no, Treasury no. And it, White is, House? it is maybe 20 steps. Like if Mnuchin wants to go over and see the president, does he go underground kind of thing? It's not underground, but uh, it's it's 15, 20 steps to the White yeah, House. Yeah, that's the way it's always been with the Gallatin uh, statue out front. And Saleh, you and Jennifer Jacobs have run, uh, written up a linkage here of a trade discussion with the stock market. Now, to back up, we didn't have a Hanoi, North Korea discussion with the stock market, did we? No, we didn't. But since the the fourth quarter of last year, investors have really taken note that these tariffs are actually happening. I think they realize that the threats are real, that the tariffs are real, the tit for tat port uh, side of this trade war is real. And so investors started reacting to a number of things, including having this uh, concern around the uncertainty of the trade war. So stock markets are down. One research study showed that stock markets are 12% lower than they would have been without the tit-for-tat tariffs between oh, the U.S. and China. Can you cite that study? That's really interesting. Not off the top of my head. But that's it's, good. It's that, that's terminal. a surveillance tradition. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know where I, I read that, but I read it somewhere. It's okay. We do that. Right. We don't do that in Washington. We do that in New York. In New York, sure. Um, thank you. Um, w- w- when you look at the president's belief in the stock market, which I think has been widely chronicled, how does he tie it into agriculture tariffs? I mean, am I right? The reporting is agriculture America's flat on its back. Is that I mean, bankruptcies in the in middle America, in the red states, you know, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, bankruptcies amongst farmers are the highest or higher than 2008. Who in the cabinet cares about that? I know the president cares about that. I'm just going to guess there and say, yes. Does the Secretary of Commerce care about that? Does the Secretary of Treasury care about that? I hope they do because that feeds into the economic agenda that they themselves are helping Trump achieve under this administration. Is there any discussion of a lessening of tariffs or an elimination of them and 
Start all over? There is definitely a talk of a lessening of tariffs. A de-escalation is what markets want. A de-escalation is what China wants. Uh, there is talk of that. Tariffs so far seem the most obvious enforcement okay. mechanism for any kind of a deal. But it mm -hmm. remains to be seen. I mean, the delay, the ones from this past Friday that were supposed right. to go into effect were delayed. So we already have a little bit of a de-escalation. But, but that bar that's down the street from our office in Washington, I've seen you in there a couple times, save face. It's a great bar. Everybody in Washington has to save face, right? How do we save face if we de-escalate tariffs? It depends on what China offers. I think a lot of it is just going to be optics. How President the Trump well said, looks well standing next to China's Xi yeah. in Mar-a-Lago, where two years ago they stood and had their first their honeymoon optics. meeting. It's yeah. the optics. They want... President Trump wants a meeting at Mar-a-Lago, a signing agreement to Why kind of Mar show Can I to ask the a world. dumb question? Why Mar-a-Lago? That is the White House of the South. Okay, but why can't House. China say, no, we want it at Banff in Canada or Jackson China Hall also or... likes the photo op. I mean, remember the SNED, the whole the highlight for China during this Hank Paulson-created uh, dialogue between the U.S. and China was the photo op. Okay, we did like four or five interviews yesterday on China, and they were fascinating. Elizabeth Economy at the Council on Foreign Relations really talked about the saving face going on in domestic China. From where you sit in Washington, uh, Soleil Motion with us right now uh, out of our Washington News Bureau on her story on Trump, the stock market and trade. Is this discussion changing because of the way the U.S. perceives the fragile dynamics President Xi has in China? Trump has repeatedly commented on the strong position that the U.S. is in, considering how China's economy is slowing and what is going on in China, like internal domestic politics. Uh, but if he wants a deal, he's also getting pressured. I mean, it is a bipartisan concern now. Chuck Schumer says the best thing Trump has ever done is go tough on China. Trump doesn't want to lose face before Chuck Schumer either. And on the one See, thing back, that he's applauded Paul about. Paul Sweeney, we're back to save face. That's all. You, anybody from Washington, that's, that's Washington, all we talk that's about. Wa yep, that's safe, Washington. Okay, we're that's currency. Face. But, but Sully, so we're going to go to Mar-a-Lago. I mean, think about Hanoi. I was in here at 2 a.m. I listened to the press conference. The reversal in Hanoi in, I'll say, 14 hours, plus or minus a couple hours. Are we going to get the same thing in your world of China? In trade? It is absolutely possible. This is what happens when there's one-to-one -one diplomacy. That's what we saw with North Korea. It all comes, Trump has said, and his aides have said over and over to me, uh, behind closed doors, they've said it to the world uh, on camera and in press conferences, that it all depends on what Trump and G President and, and China's G decide when they are face-to-face. So you're -face. telling, this is critical now, you're telling me in your reporting, just like we saw in that White House meeting X number of days ago, were you in the Oval Office during the Lighthizer meeting? No. The light, okay. The, maybe Kevin was there. I can't remember. The Lighthizer dress down, I'm going to call it, you know, is that still in effect where the president's ad hocing? Absolutely. Our this is an ad hoc uh, administration. Now, there is a ch always a chance. Pompeo said this last week in an interview or earlier this week. I can't keep track. Secretary of State. Yeah, yeah, Secretary of State Pompeo said that it is possible that Trump walks away like he did with North, North Korea. He walks away with China. But the difference is that Trump really wants to uh, an equities uh, rally from a China deal. He has noticed that every time he tweets, every time Mnuchin or someone goes out there and talks positively about China, investors are happy. The stock market goes up. Yes. And so when someone walks into the Oval Office, when top 
White House people walk into the Oval Office, they know you better know how the stock markets are doing okay. right now because pres- the president's going to ask. If, if trade falls apart, even if we save face, this is the save face interview, can tariffs go down? Where we go, we really made no decision. We're going to kick the trade can down the road. But to our listeners in the Midwest, do they cut tariffs as they wait for the can to move down the road? Yeah, it's absolutely possible. Almost like a two-part. Yeah, anything is possible. There's a giant gray area. This is what I've been up here in New York trying to explain to investors that I've been talking to that, you know, markets have made it a very binary choice of either it's going to be a good deal or a bad deal. But there is a vast gray area that the president could, or that China could exploit here. But within this discussion, there has to be a timeline. Do you have... Do you or Secretary Mnuchin have a timeline? If he has one, he hasn't told me. All we know Damn. is that there's a 150-page 150 150-page document. But uh, What is there 150 pages of? A 150-page document that's uh, that says the stocks have to go up. <laughs> yeah, that would be fabulous. No, it's some <clears throat> sort of a deal-making. The MOUs, or we're not going to call them MOUs. They're all in there. We're not, not, not. It's 150 pages, according to Mnuchin. Now, the but, last time we heard about some big document, there was nothing yeah, but with the, tax analysis. The, this is critical. The, the summary of your reporting is we don't know. Exactly. And it's been so much fun to report that. This is brilliant. Come back to New York uh, uh, more often. Salaam Owen with us uh, as well. Writing in Bloomberg today with Jennifer Jacobs. It's a really interesting story, an immediate story, about the president is said to push for China deal with market gains in uh, mine. We, of course, speak to uh, Salaya in uh, Washington at 99.1 FM in her studios at our news bureau in uh, Washington. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.